Uh, okay, so one thing to pass around. Dr. Laverty, our music director, shared this with me today. We may be uh, getting some of these and putting them in the pews. Uh, they are a little leaflet, I guess you would call it, that explains uh, communion and the communion liturgy, and it gives all of the scripture references and talks uh, a little bit about explaining why um, I keep losing my mouse, there it is, uh, why we do the things uh, that we do in worship. So I'll show this here, and if uh, next week or whenever you're in church next time, uh, I can let you borrow this one. We may be, depending on, well, I'll bring it up to the lay ministers, maybe we'll buy some more of these and put them in every pew um, as kind of a resource to have for explaining uh, explaining the different parts of liturgy and also where in the scripture they come from. Uh, they're not just out of nowhere, but they arise from the Bible and from, uh, from of course, tradition, what the church decided to use from the Bible for, uh, for Christian worship. So um, that's a pretty handy uh, little resource. Uh, the second thing is this book uh, called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Uh, there's a longer quotation on the handout as well as the PDF that you guys have uh, online from this book that I think is very helpful. Uh, if you're wondering about the Trinity, if you're staying up late at night because you keep thinking about how God can be three in one and you can't sleep and you finally got to go have some more milk because it's bothering you, uh, this is a pretty helpful little book on the Trinity specifically, uh, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. He's not a Lutheran. Uh, he's an Anglican, so Church of England. Um, very good book, uh, and there's a longer quotation on the front, but if you'd like to just take a look at that, this book is largely going to talk about why it makes sense that God is three persons and one God, and not just one solitary being, however you say it. That is to say that God is, um, as Augustine would say, God is uh, love, the beloved Jesus and then the force of love between the lover of the Father, the beloved Jesus and the force of love between them, the Holy Spirit. And that's weird, but it actually makes sense uh, if you think about the fact that God uh, was always in relationships with himself and then that love spills out into creation because God desires to be in relationships with more more beings, more human creatures who are who are made in his image. So uh, very often we talk about the Trinity in terms of what they do. You know, the Father primarily creates, the Son redeems, the Holy Spirit sanctifies or brings us to faith, makes us holy. Um, but that's kind of a helpful book from, uh, from a historical perspective, too. He'll talk a lot about the, the discussions over the Trinity and why, you know, St. Nicholas at the Council of Nicaea punched a heretic. He punched Arius in the face uh, according to legend for, for believing that there was a time when Jesus was not, right? Um, so uh, any thoughts, comments, questions about that? No, but this is really good. I, I yeah. really like looking at that and we talked last week about um, the sermon and mm -hmm how when some of us grew up Catholic or whatever other religion, they didn't bring the word of God into this. And this has some good references um, yeah. on that part of it. So, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, that's a helpful leaflet that kind of lays it all out, all the parts, and just says, yeah. here's where it comes from, here's why it's a little bit different uh, than perhaps other churches, and here's why we do it. So um, maybe those will making be making their way into a pew near you soon. <laughs> for now, we'll, we'll have that, that one. Um, so to, to just ponder on this quotation on the very front part of the, the handout there, you can see uh, the 20th century Russian theologian Vladimir Lovsky, he's an Eastern Orthodox theologian. So that big church on 64, that's Eastern Orthodox, right? The I one so. on the, it'd be the north side of 64? Yeah. There's Wait, a couple no, of those massive. It's the south side. South side, okay. South side. Yes, because as you're traveling east, <laughs> yes. okay, I got turned around for a minute. It's on the south side. It was great living in Colorado because you always knew which direction was west because mm -hmm. there were the mountains, <laughs> and that solved all your problems for you. So on the south side, there's that big Greek Orthodox church. Mm -hmm. There's also one next to uh, Central West End. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if any of those are the very highly ornate, decorated 
uh, Eastern Orthodox Church where they have all the beautiful icons that are there and, and all of the imagery that's there. When you um, say Eastern Orthodox, is that the same as Greek Orthodox? Well, my understanding, and I could be mistaken, is that Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox are both branches from the same tree. Got it. Okay. But they would be a little bit different. Okay. In, um, practice, maybe. Practice, and who you who is the kind of final arbiter. So the, okay. who's the, um, is it Archbishop Kirill of Moscow? I have no idea. Uh, who is, I think, <laughs> the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, and of course he's in some... Well, people don't like him because he's very supportive of Putin, right? Okay. He's, he's very what? Supportive. Supportive of Putin. Oh, oh. Yeah. Oh. Right. Um, so I, I don't know. I shouldn't okay. said that. I'm beyond my. <laughs> I'm out of my depth already there. Yeah. So, um, but Vladimir Lasky put it like this: If we reject the Trinity as the sole ground of all reality and all thought, we are committed to a road that leads nowhere. We end in operia, despair, and folly, and the disintegration of our being in spiritual death. Between the Trinity and hell, there lies no other choice. That's dramatic. Yes, okay. Yes. Um, I think I agree, but it's said a little bit more boldly than I think I would say it. Uh, but it's interesting to think about. However, starting with Jesus, Athanasius found himself with a God who could not have been more different from the God of Arius. So 1,700 years ago, Arius was the one who was punched by Santa Claus and said there was a time when the sun was not. That though Jesus was adopted, though Jesus was given perhaps special power of God, though he was given an extra measure of the Holy Spirit, he was functionally like us. Uh, which would also uh, a little bit be similar to how uh, Islam views Jesus and perhaps uh, the Mormon Church, Latter-day Saints, would, you, would view Jesus. Um, it wasn't that he found himself with some extra small print in his description of God, the Trinity. Athanasius had a God of love, a kind Father who shares us, who draws us to share his eternal love and fellowship. The choice remains: which God will we have? Which God will we proclaim? Without Jesus, the Son. We cannot know that God is truly a loving Father. Without Jesus the Son, we cannot know him as our loving Father. But, as Luther discovered, uh, through Jesus we may know that God is a Father, and, quote, we may look into his fatherly heart and sense how boundlessly he loves us. That would warm our hearts, setting them aglow. Yes, it would, and more. It would bring about a reformation. So the idea is not just that God exists, but how do you know what kind of God uh, you have, right? So to take the example of a recent tragedy in, in Los Angeles, although I don't... Have there been any, any deaths from that in Southern California? Has that been mostly... Just, yeah, uh, none that are... None that, okay, not like Maui. But take Maui as a better example, right? So if your family all perished in Maui, it's pretty easy to infer from that that God... Uh, is punishing you, or God hates you, or, or something, right? Um, unless you have the God who revealed himself and made known himself to you in, in and through his son, Jesus Christ, right? So the question is not just does God exist, uh, but what kind of God, and how would you know God not only as a father in general, but as our father, your father? And that's um, part of the, the logic of the doctrine of the Trinity. Any questions on that uh, that quotation? It's kind of that's the very last, the final three paragraphs of that book. Um, so I cheated and gave you a spoiler, but I you'll understand it again once you read the or once and if you read the the whole book. Michael Reeves, delighting in the Trinity. All right, uh, seeing none, then and Jessica or Linda just. Uh, uh, let me know whenever you have a question. I'm not exactly looking at it right now, so if you um, just shout yeah. out whenever. Um, uh, so then to move to um, prayer. So 
at the top, the Ten Commandments are what we are to do, right? Which is actually a good thing because instead of just doing whatever, like many other ancient cultures had to do, where, oh, we think that sacrificing our children to to this god might relieve the drought or what can we sacrifice to get rid of the heat can you imagine waking up and walking outside on on monday morning and not having any idea about the reasons why and thinking how in the world do we put an end to this oppressive heat what can we do perhaps someone in our community sinned and we need to get rid of them or or whatever right uh we need to take this person and send them off into exile well not only does god give in the old testament a way for people to live the Ten Commandments. Here's what you do to live a life that honors God and honors uh, honors your neighbor and loves and cares for them. But he also gives a system of, of uh, sacrifice and ritual that points to exactly how it's to be done. So sometimes we talk about uh, Old Testament Jews and all the work that went into that. And sometimes Christians will preach it this way. Can you imagine that just to come into the church, you all need to get your goat tie it up, throw it into the trunk of your car, bring it right to the vestibule there, and then there in the vestibule we're going we're gonna to slaughter your goat on your behalf, right? And then only then, once you have the blood of the goat on you, and I'm, that's obviously not the system that was in place, but just to use the example, only once you have the blood of the goat on you to atone for your sins, then can you enter into the, the holy place, into the sanctuary, right? And so we'll talk about that like that was a, a really difficult thing and a burden and of course it was um, but compared to all the other religions where they were just guessing at how they were, would relate to their God that was actually kind of a good thing right here's exactly how it's going to be uh, these group of people called the Levites they're going to be the ones to uh, to handle the temple rituals to handle the, handle the sacrifices you can bring your animals to them they'll sacrifice this this and on and on and on right um, let me just see one thing apologies sorry about this okay um, so they had a way of, of relating that God had actually revealed to them um, nevertheless, they, of course, couldn't do it. And the story of the Old Testament is them failing to, to live up to God's commandments so often, right? So the Ten Commandments in it tells us what we're supposed to do. The Creed is telling us what we are to believe or even more accurately what God wonderfully invites us to believe. Um, and then the Lord's Prayer is how we respond to that uh, in prayer. So um, what is prayer? Uh, before we look at the answers that I have given on the sheet, to ask that question generally, if someone who was not a believer uh, were to come up and ask you what prayer is, how would you respond? Silent. A way to connect with God. Mm -hmm. Okay, so a way to connect with God, right? Um, and not to, not to just harp on this theme, but the multiplicity of ways that God gives us to connect with him. There's individual prayer, there's corporate worship, there's the sacraments, right? So it's it's a little bit uh, like all of the ways that God allows us, invites us to connect with him. Um, so how specifically do you connect with God in prayer? Every request, like a, you know, something to scale or... Sure, sure, yeah. So we... You have things that are going on in your life, and God, presumably, at least on the basis of how Christians pray, he is able to answer those requests. I think sometimes it's just a conversation, and, uh -huh. and you hear God's voice. Um, it, I, sometimes I don't even know I'm praying, uh -huh. and I was sense like, Okay, yeah, I was talking to God, and I didn't even realize he was talking back. And Right. And, yeah, it, it's it's unplanned sometimes, like uh -huh. a conversation. So, boy, that leads me down a whole uh -huh. list of rabbit trails, sorry. Prayer has, can't have this kind of unplanned quality to it, even though we tend to, th I mean, do you tend to think of prayer more... Um, 
converse, I'll put it. I'll put the dichotomy this way: conversationally or ritualistically. That is to say, yeah, is it is it something you do all the time, an ongoing conversation with God, or is it something where I have my twenty minutes at the end of the day, my five minutes in the morning when I when I set out time to pray? It can be both. I think it's both. Right. Yeah. Both. Yeah. What? Uh, <laughs> what would be the benefits of one or the other? We might. Feel, that's a stupid question. Right. No, no, no. <laughs> or uh, yeah, you might feel obligated and uh, like you're doing prayer for obligation if you have a certain time of day, and sometimes you may not have anything that you want to. I don't know. Right. I think if you do it as an ongoing conversation, it makes him more real. Mm-hmm. At least for me, you know, like I don't. The other day, I, I mean, I, I have to pamper my knees and my ankles. And the other day, I just tore, sort of did a little, you know, wonky step, and it could have been bad, but mm-hmm. it wasn't. I said, "Whoa, God, thank you. That was a good mm-hmm. catch." <laughs> you know, right. uh, you know, or just, you know, it just. It just makes him more real, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, one of the advantages that of that's the advantage of the kind of conversational thing is the kind of the reality of God in daily life, and that God is not mm-hmm. uh, like distant. Mm-hmm. Um, what would be the advantages of the more ritualized? I'm going to take 20 minutes. I'm going to say even prayers out of a prayer book, or I'm going to I'm going to write down these things to pray for. I'm going to follow this form of prayer, right? Because, uh, of course, what we're going to talk about tonight is the Lord's Prayer, and Jesus teaches us, invites us to pray using specific words that, um, that the church has been handed down through, you know, obviously God inspired it in the scriptures, the church hands it down, and we still pray that um, several, several times. So are there, uh, what advantages might there be to that? When you set aside time, and you, and you, right. you, you, you just kind of like, oops, I'm going to wind down. Right. Then go on. Right. Instead of just going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I and think it emphasizes his holiness. Familiarity mm-hmm. and closeness, and also his holiness and his otherness. And so, if you can capture that tension, you basically understood theology, right? That God is both completely holy and he's other, but he's also near and right next to us, and he knows us better than we know ourselves, mm-hmm. right? In, especially in and through Jesus, right? So, that's a real kind of uh, tension to hold. And prayer in that way is actually a very good example of holding to both of those things. So, um, on the one hand, of course, it's prayer of the heart, very conversational. Say whatever comes into your mind. Don't worry about uh, editing what you're going to say. If you've ever uh, journaled as a tool for well-being, you know that the more you do that, the better you get at stopping your filter and just writing out exactly what you're thinking, right? Because everybody is, to a certain extent, um, how do you say this carefully? Everybody is, to a certain extent, performing a role if you're in front of other people. And you're trying to meet the expectations of other people. But if you're really alone, journaling, even just to yourself, and then you add God to that, well, God knows you already. <laughs> so if you're if you're performing in some way or another, then God already recognizes it, right? So uh, if you can capture kind of the, the holiness and also the nearness of God, that's not only, in a way, prayer, but that's also theology, right? So I would say we try and do the same in worship, right? So why um, why do we have a, a liturgy, right? It's partially because it's been handed down to us, because it comes from the Scripture. It's how God wants us to do it. But some of that is trying to maintain the holiness of God and also the nearness. So I mentioned, I think I mentioned last week or the week before, when the Sanctus plays in the communion liturgy, the holy, 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 you hear the tintinabulum, the bells, that's kind of like a doorbell. Jesus is now right here, right? So reverence and holiness, nearness and familiarity, 
all of those things that we might think are intention are kind of held held together. Um, thoughts, comments, questions there. Well, that was kind of the whole, you know, the whole goat thing, slaying of the mm -hmm. goat thing, too, because I think they had to do it because they knew God deserved it and they couldn't be near him unless this goat, you know, took care of their sins. So I just think that they knew more about the whole, I, the holiness of God. Well, and, and there is a way in which the holiness of God is much more of our problem in our context, right? That is to say, by and large, culturally, I think we've, those who are believers mm -hmm. will very often prioritize the nearness of God compared to the holiness. Mm -hmm. and, and that could show up in the way that people dress in church, behave in church, what people do at, at church, right? Um, for example, and I, I hesitate to even say this because I don't want to be too critical of other churches. I think there's a reason they're doing that. It's because they're trying to emphasize how God is welcoming all people. But, mm -hmm. but churches that invite you to bring your coffee into the... I was at a church one time in Lincoln and saying, yeah. yeah. The coffee shop was there in the place that we were worshiping. Right. And so in the middle of worship, people were going and getting coffee. Mm -hmm. uh, right? My brother's church is like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, seriously, we go to church with them and... Yeah. It's a coffee bar. I'm like... Right. And you understand the reason, I think, hopefully my experience is more the exception than the norm of having a coffee bar inside the sanctuary. Exactly. And, and it became distracting, right? I mean, that was just one thing on a practical level. And people are over there ordering their coffee. Right. It was a big distraction. <laughs> You're trying to worship. But they're trying to emphasize the, the nearness and the familiarity and the welcoming nature of God. Probably, they're, I would say they're doing it at the expense of, of understanding God's holiness. Right. right. That makes them like you know, the bartender, you know, exactly. or, the, or your buddy, yeah. or your, yeah. one of the guys, <laughs> you know, uh, well, you know, I mean, you could always yeah. talk to the bartender, he'll listen. Right, so <laughs> God is Sam from Cheers, right, yeah, and exactly. uh, there we go, I, yeah. I don't know if, if the Holy Spirit is Norm or who he is, but yeah. uh, I guess it'd be the Holy Spirits in that case, what, Gene? Yeah. He knows your name. Right? He knows your name, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, there you go. So that is, yeah, and that's a, that's a real uh, conundrum, because have I mentioned moralistic therapeutic deism in this class? I know I mentioned yeah. it on Sunday. But uh, moralistic therapeutic deism is this belief uh, that many people, they did this massive study in around 2005 of young people who grew up Christian, right? And they're wondering, okay, they're growing up in the church. What do these young people actually believe? And when it came down to it, they didn't necessarily believe, or at least they weren't fully able to articulate a belief in a triune God. Mm -hmm. What they were able to articulate is uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. That deism, some God exists, not necessarily the Trinity. Jesus may or may not matter. Uh, moralism, God wants me to do the right things. And, and therapeutic, God wants me to be happy. Mm -hmm. And that was a kind of sum total. Um, or we can think of God as kind of a... A divine gumball machine <laughs> that God exists to give me what I want and to do what I want which is why it's actually maybe a good thing that God very often doesn't answer our prayers the way we want because <laughs> that reminds us that God is God and we are we are not and that is part and parcel of the very holiness of, of God the, the his otherness That's why I think we have to make people, not make people, we have to let people know that heaven is real. Uh -huh. And God is in heaven, and you can't be with God unless you're perfect, because he can't tolerate anything that's not perfect. Right. And the only way you can be perfect to go to heaven is because of Jesus. Right, yeah, and that... Um Well, so yeah, yeah. So people don't, people aren't going to think about the nature of God if God exists in general, right? But then they're also, you'd have a problem with people thinking that they aren't justified in doing what they're doing. So you have a problem with people actually coming to terms with their own sin, right? And there is that sense of, of perfection, of God's perfection cannot tolerate imperfection or unholiness. Um, 
which is which is part of the, the logic of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, which obviously I don't believe in. No. But the logic of it was you die and yet you're still a sinner, which we have Lutherans would say too. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do with all that sin? You can't take it into heaven with you. Right. You can't take your bags into the door with you, right? Uh, this is a one-way flight, and you got to leave your baggage at, at the gate. Right. Uh, so how do you get rid of that baggage? Well, you got to spend a lot of time in an airport called Purgatory. Right? Wow. But even uh, uh, Benedict XVI, so the most, the Pope before Pope Francis had done some rethinking of the doctrine of Purgatory, and he had said that Purgatory might be nothing more than a purifying fire and it might be momentary mm. which is interesting mm-hmm. um, so in some ways on a number of issues the Roman Catholic Church has since Vatican II gotten closer to Lutherans and some of the reforms that mm-hmm. Martin Luther was advocating for they just did it 400 years after Luther died right? like, like mass in the vernacular mass in English in our case and not uh, Latin So yeah, understanding the perfection and nature of God or thinking about it. There's a great quote, and I'll have to look it up, from Dallas Willard about the language that we use about God and how we use really watered-down language, and that's maybe partially an education problem, too. Um, how many... Uh, I wish Brian were here, Sue. He is. He's I, at the other meeting. Oh, yeah. Right. It's Men's Bible Study. Well, I should drag him in no, here and make him recite, well, no, recite it's, some poetry. It's the Oh, music. no, the concert committee is tonight. Yeah, right, right. Um, you can go I sh- get them. No, I don't need to get more off track than I already am. Um, <laughs> but if you grew up in high school memorizing poetry uh, or reading Shakespeare, um, and that is maybe not happening as much as it used to, right? And in general, perhaps our use of language to describe excellent things is declining. Has anybody ever read C.S. Lewis' uh, Abolition of Man? Uh, that's another great book to read. I hate to fill your bookshelves with, <laughs> I hate to fill your bookshelves with burdens and say read all these books. But he talks about our, uh, even when he was writing that in the fifties about education, then what were the kids being taught to say? They were not taught to say that waterfall is sublime. They were taught to think to say I think that waterfall is sublime, or I feel that waterfall is sublime. So that the reality of the sublimity, is that a word, sublimity, the beautiful nature of the waterfall, is not external to them. It's only a matter of my perception, Hmm. right? So it's called abolition of? The abolition of man. Abolition of man. Um, Yeah. Hmm. In any event, um, yes, God is perfect, and you're only perfect through Christ, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Thoughts, comments, questions, otherwise we will try and talk a little bit about prayer. Uh, okay, we're not doing too bad. 735. So, prayer of any kind is our response to God speaking to us through his word. So, first, God is always the one addressing us, speaking to us. We would even say loving us. And then we do everything in response. And that's also why Luther puts it in this order. Ten Commandments, what we are to do. Uh, the Creed, what God's done has, what's God has has done for us, and then the Lord's Prayer, how we respond after we have been given the gift of faith, uh, how we respond to that in prayer. So uh, here's a question that I find interesting. Is prayer primarily concerned with changing God or changing us? Changing us. And do you change God? Yeah, that's exactly right. doesn't happen. Right. Well, right. It doesn't happen because God is, is by nature uh, perfect, right. and yet... What about the story from Genesis of Abraham pleading with God to, to, to spare Sodom and Gomorrah if but five are found there? What do you do with that story? Well, he wasn't changing God. God was probably going to do that all the time. He was just wanting to hear Abraham's... He was inviting Abraham to... To um, to ask him. Yeah. I agree with that. Any yeah. other thoughts? Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's your thought. I think we teach it so we could teach Abraham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could teach yeah. Abraham. You can ask me. 
you can ask me this, you can ask me this, you and you know. Right. But I think it also taught the people of Sodom and Gomorrah if he was praying aloud. Yeah. That. Wow. Yeah. I don't know. Is it like an opportunity to show your faith? I don't know. I was thinking about mm -hmm. several stories where they pray and they're like, well, even if God doesn't come through, mm -hmm. we're still gonna believe it. Right. Then, no, then he did come through on a lot of those stories. Right. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, those things, I mean, I would think that God knew that there were no people in Sodom anymore. Yeah. But he was willing to listen to the pleas, like Sue was saying. Right. And, and just because it showed the. I guess the humanity of the person that says, well, how about if there's just five? Mm -hmm. or something, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That shows that there was some caring humanity there. Right. When he knew that there wasn't even going to be five. Yeah. I'm still going to listen to you. Yeah, right. But I know what I'm going to do. Yeah. So. I think it was a lesson for Abraham. Well, yes. Yeah. Yeah, like he was showing him step by step how to talk, how to how to ask him. Was this before, or after? I know I should know this history. Um, Isaac. Sort of before, um, I think, in Genesis eighteen. Yeah. Well. May I say something? Yes, go for it, Linda. Okay, I'm having oh, trouble. Oh, sorry. Hearing. You raised hand and I couldn't see it. Sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. I'll lower my hand now. Uh, I I couldn't hear what everybody's saying, and I don't know if we're actually still on the subject of uh, of changing God. Mm -hmm. Is that? Is yes. That yeah, that's what we're on. Yep. Okay. Okay, and but I, I don't understand God to ever change. Mm -hmm. To me. I mean, I, I've been taught and I believe that God is the same always. He does not change. And so I don't know. I, I'm not following the question, I guess, because I wouldn't have even thought it was possible to expect God to change. Yeah, and I, and I think I would maybe make a distinction between I, this maybe isn't going to work, but I'll try anyway. Changing his nature and changing his decision about something. I mean, as I read, I read the story from Abraham. I think it is changing Abraham, and Abraham is demonstrating his faith. And it's not as though God would be in the wrong to just say no to Abraham. Mm -hmm. um, but the prayers of a righteous person are effective, and uh, but ultimately the decision is up to God. Right, but yes, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and yet we ought to still pray. Um, and there is a point to praying and actually specifically asking God for things. And that, to me, is a mystery we're probably not going to solve. Uh, to to put our to put our hand on another point of tension like that as well. Um, does that does that respond to what you said, Linda? I think so. Okay. Yeah, I, I, it's not fair, and it's a little bit of a, it's cheating of well, me to ask the question, does God change? Well, and God is all-knowing. Right. So, we ask, he already knows what's going to happen, right? Right, yeah, right. right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we still ask. We right. still ask, and it is good for us, and he invites mm -hmm. us into the relationship. Right. But that, like Kate was saying, that I think is, is that no matter how we... we pray and ask and whatnot, God's answer is still perfect. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Even if we don't think he's answered us. Mm -hmm. Right. It's still perfect. Or even if you're really angry at God for one reason or another, for allowing something to happen or for not answering your prayer the way you think it ought to have been answered. Mm -hmm. He's still God and he actually wants you to be angry at him. Mm -hmm. Not... <laughs> Not just not just uh, angry about God, but also take your anger up with God, mm -hmm. right? So it's a relational dynamic mm -hmm. primarily, right? So in some way, trying to solve that question of does it change God or change us? Well, it's primarily about changing us, but it's also about primarily staying in the relationship with God and not being distant from Him, even when things don't work out the way we think they ought to have worked out. I'll put it put it that way. 
I, I think we have to learn to be more um, patient because I think all my prayers have been answered yes or no, but not in my time frame. Eventually, right. I get the the answer comes to me, and uh-huh. it, you know it is what it is, and I accept it. Right, right, and patience is a willingness to let God be God mm-hmm. at some level. Um, and patience is almost the the virtue of all virtues in some way. Mm-hmm. I think if you be patient, you've got everything else covered. All right, any other thoughts on that? I mean, it would be interesting if everyone would, you know, I hate to give you too much homework, but uh, if, you, if you want to read Genesis 18 in addition to delighting in the Trinity and the abolition of man, and then you'll be, you'll be good to go. But, yeah, read Genesis 18 and just think about that, that story, right, and, and Abraham praying to, um, to God. I mean, clearly, even if he doesn't expect God to answer him, that's what he wants, right? And he wants to spare them, and it's a good thing that he wants that. So... Um, Can you say something about that statement? Prayer takes place at God's initiation and invitation. Is yes. that a statement, a general, or every single, well, not every single time, but are we being prodded to pray to him uh, maybe each time? Or is it just, you know, I've told you, I invite you to pray for me anytime. Let me ask the question this way. Does God hear the prayers of unbelievers? Well, he hears and knows everything, yeah. so he definitely hears. Right. So he's omniscient. That that God being omniscient, knowing everything, causes us all kinds of problems, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. If an unbeliever was an unbeliever, why would he why pray? Would he pray? Well, you know, you've ignored God for 30 to 40 years, right. and you come upon some tragedy, but you right. know of God. Right. Uh, and uh, so you're going to try it out. could be the seed that changes. Right. Exactly. It could be, right? right? So it could be the Holy, even in that case. Right. Uh, even in that case, I would say maybe the Holy Spirit is working faith already within them. Right. And that that is the thing that will bring them to to faith, right? Um, on the other hand, I think some people would say God certainly hears, but has no obligation to answer those who might come without Christ, right? So we would say in part that we're worthy to pray, and we can be certain that God hears us because you know Jesus paid for our sins, and thus uh, we have. When our mail goes out, we have the correct stamp on it. That's a crude analogy for Jesus, right? But the blood of Jesus covers your envelope that's going to the Father so you can be certain that he hears and he's going to answer. And unbelievers uh, may not have that. On the other hand, right, that might be evidence of the Holy Spirit at work. So to that, to what I'm getting at there is that even prayer is not this work of our own. Those who pray are already doing so at the prior initiation of God. Okay. Got it. So what you were asking, like, is it every time? Right. Exactly. Maybe right. It was right. Just ingrained in. Right. Exactly. Well, it's ingrained yeah. in God. It's constantly through the Holy Spirit calling us to be in a relationship with Him in prayer. Mm-hmm. Does that make sure. sense? Yes, it does. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Um, all right. So let's. Um, well, how then are we to pray? So in Matthew 6, Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees because what do they do? They'll stand on the street corner right. and they will broadcast their prayers and they will look very pious, mm-hmm. which is why we shouldn't pray publicly in church because people will come in and see us praying. And they'll mm-hmm. say, Those bunch of Lutherans <laughs> praying in public in their sanctuary, who are they trying to impress? Um, Prayers in private or public, alone or with other people, better or worse, indifferent, not different. Say that again. Please. Prayers private or in public, alone or with others, better or worse or indifferent. Oh, you're asking the question. I'm asking some kind of question or okay. inviting some kind of comparison that may not, that may be fruitful. Or may not. <laughs> you know, you know. I try. think at any time of our lives, those four mechanisms are times of prayer. Mm-hmm. Are all 
I yeah. don't know if there's any better or worse. Um, that's hard to answer. Yeah, I mean, I would say, what's the risk? I mean, it kind of goes back to our, 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 what we said about uh, ritualized prayer versus conversational prayer, mm-hmm. right? And you can see the danger in, in, in only praying in public with other people. Yeah. You can see the danger in only praying in private by yourself. Yeah. And, and so, um, I mean, a lot, the short answer is that what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6 about go into your closet, go into your room, take your concerns to God alone is not really getting at it's not really criticizing public worship or anything like that certainly the early church did that right um but but it's more concerning the hypocritical attitude that would pray in such a way to be seen right so if you're praying or really doing anything in order that you may be seen then that's spiritually dangerous to you right um anyway uh that's uh you could read Matthew 6 in addition to all the other readings. <laughs> and then you could read Revelation 7. So for whom should we pray? Another question, whom should pray for us? Um, so the Roman Catholic doctrine of the, um, well, I'll ask you, uh, Tim and Sue, how did you receive it as kids or even more recently when you were praying? Were you praying to the saints? What was actually going on in that exchange? When I was a kid, we prayed to the saints. We, we actually prayed to the saints. And okay. then the saints would talk to God. Right. Because everybody was up there, and, you know, I was taught heaven's up, everybody's up there in heaven, and so the saints are up there, and they have a direct line to God. Right. Pretty much what I heard. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. You need intercession. Right. Yeah. And, and I've never happen. understood that. Yeah. yeah. Being a Lutheran, I right. Yeah. Right. Understood yeah. that. Yeah. And, and certain all, saints were good for certain things. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lost something or two. Yeah. Right. So who is um, yeah. who's the patron saint of lost items? Anthony. Anthony. Yes, I saw. I have still prayed to him once. <laughs> 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 I have to that. Right. Right. I usually, you know, pretty good, pretty good for cities. So. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> and then there was the Saint Joseph. <laughs> Right, right. St. Joseph. St. Anthony knew how much I think it's the one. Which one got buried upside Is it St. Joseph that gets buried upside down when you're trying to sell your Yeah, when you're trying to sell your house. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Do you understand? I don't understand. I've heard about it, but I don't get it. I don't either. I lived in the Northeast area in Kansas City, Missouri, which is a big Italian family. And that's what they did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I've but told people we just pay, pray to the big guy. Right. Yeah. We don't. You know, right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we, have a, we have a direct line. Yeah. 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 Right. But it's even like we would pray the rosary. Like uh-huh. if you go to confession and try to think of things that you did wrong as an eight-year-old, pray the rosary three times. It was always my penance, and it was treated as a penance. It was not yeah. even treated as a relational thing. Mm-hmm. It was a penance for whatever I did wrong. Right. And so that's a different thing, too. Like prayer being used as a penance. <laughs> yeah, that could go on and on. Couldn't that it? could yeah. go on and on. And there's obviously a real a real history to that. Yeah. Because what, I mean, what my, so I'll be, I'll try and give the, uh, be sympathetic to the Roman Catholic position on this. It, what, what happened for Luther's time, before Luther's time, was that the system of confession and absolution, we'll get to this in a few weeks, it's supposed to be confession and absolution, but then, satisfaction or penance, right? So the idea was not necessarily that your forgiveness of sins rested on whether or not you prayed the rosary three times, mm-hmm. but that that was just simply something good to do to reinforce it, right? So if I steal 20 bucks out of Daryl's wallet, and then I and I ask Daryl to forgive me because I did it, well, that's great, and he can forgive me, but what should I also do? Give him the money back, right? Yeah, I should, I should make the situation right, Yeah. which was, which was the idea behind satisfaction, okay. penance. And then, especially in Luther's time, it became implicitly, if not explicitly, that your forgiveness rested on this. Okay. And moreover, in Luther, especially before Luther's time, it wasn't three rosaries, it was go say a thousand and go add 500 Our Fathers to it. Yeah. Such that nobody could possibly complete what was usually given to them in the sacrament of the right. sacrament of penance. Yeah. Right? And so that's where you got the really long 
purgatory period from, which of course creates a financial incentive because then the church can provide indulgences and then you can build a beautiful church like like St. Chapelle in Paris, which I think was financed through the sale of indulgences. So um, what does it say as I'm, I'll move this screen out of the way? And what does it say that beautiful works of art Oops. were, were um, so much junk here? Were, were financed by indulgences, right? Maybe we should go back to it if we can build this, right? I mean, you know, uh, what comes to mind when when Brian and I were traveling um, this summer, we went to uh, it Lady of Lords, wherever the Virgin appeared to the kids. It's Lords, Fatima. Isn't it? Fatima. Yeah. Why am I thinking Lords? I don't That's know. It. Okay, I don't know but when when we went there. You buy candles if you want candles, and they're like one, two, or three dollars depending on the color. And then you throw the candles, you light them from a, a fire, and that's supposed to provide protection from lots of things. Um, sure. When you put, but it was like a month, you know, here's a, a vendors of candles all over the place, and then you go and there's a fire, and you light the candle and give an intention, and the intention is going to be given to you by the by Mary uh-huh. it just didn't sit well with me well and that <laughs> in general can can kind of lean back to this uh, weird. the phrase I've heard it described as I think is accurate and hopefully makes sense is mathematical piety which is to say that your relationship with God can be quantified mm-hmm. by three Hail Marys okay. or something like this now if you think about human relationships obviously you can quantify those in certain ways, right? I spent X amount of time with this friend. I went on X amount of dates with my spouse, whatever. Right. But the point is not that you quantify it because the relationship is something that's unquantifiable. Right. Right. I like and, that. And yeah. the heart of the relationship can't be quantified. You can't mm-hmm. reduce the relationship to a certain amount of good acts done within the relationship. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so that's actually a problem. That's where, where something that maybe has a good start in history gets, gets to carry a lot of baggage. So even satisfaction, because we have confession and absolution, and I can think as a pastor, if somebody were coming out and say, okay, you, your forgiveness doesn't rest on this, but it would be a really good idea for mm-hmm. you as a human being to go and talk to this person. Mm-hmm. Or uh, if you would wake up every day and instead of scrolling on your phone for 20 minutes, if you would wake up every day and pray the Lord's Prayer 10 times in a row, Mm-hmm. That'd probably be better for your soul, right? right? right. Uh, but I'm not going to make for, for anyone's forgiveness uh, conditional upon that, but that's right. a good idea. And, but then I think throughout time, and especially to Luther's day, that it develops into the system in which that's what's implicitly being received. Um, so how did we get there? Prayer to the saints. And they would say they're not, uh, they would generally say, which is interesting because the difference between what's received by your average Joe Roman Catholic versus those who will be more careful in how they use language. Most of the Roman Catholic um, scholars, professors, theologians, priests will say, well, we don't pray to the saints. We ask them to pray for us. We're asking them to receive for us. But what's often received by the lay people on the ground level as I pray to St. Anthony, St. Anthony finds my stuff, right? right? right, right. <laughs> That's that St. Anthony has some kind of power instead of bringing it to God, right? right. And I saw this comic one time about St. Anthony being annoyed that he has to spend all eternity finding people lost keys, <laughs> right? Yeah. Ah, I got to heaven and now all I gotta do is help people find their junk that they lost or whatever it is. Um, but of course we would say, and, and I think they would say, well, Romans 7, describes saints around the throne of the Lamb and they're praising him so maybe they hear us but there's no there's nothing in scripture that would say explicitly saints can hear us mm-hmm. or that we ought to pray to them right God invites Jesus invites us to pray directly to our father mm-hmm. right and not through not through any 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 intermediary mm-hmm. intermediator uh, there is one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus right so what do you um, say to somebody who has a loved one that's died? And they say they, you know, their loved one told them this when they were praying. I mean, because some well, people are very convinced that they yeah. that they are talking to their relatives, their friend, their loved one that's in heaven. 
right. directly. And I guess you don't say anything, you just move on. <laughs> well, I first thought is if it's a Christian person, how they know it's not God speaking okay. to them. Mm -hmm. I like that. My second question is if it's not somebody who's Christian, and you got to be careful about this. Demons are real, and demons will often use those who are mediums or spiritists or whoever oh. to impersonate loved ones, right? So somebody, and I don't know about, I wouldn't say, so if somebody's praying, I wouldn't say that. If they go to a medium or a seance, yeah. and they're convinced that their loved one spoke to them through that, that's more than likely demonic activity. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's, Good to think about. I never really thought of demonic activity at all. Yeah. Those people. Yeah. Right. Missing their yeah. Hm. Yeah. So the devils take it takes advantage of somebody who might be missing someone. Or yeah. There was a I heard the story third hand, so take it with for with a grain of salt or a margarita of salt on the rim, if that's what you <laughs> But there was a guy once whose wife had died, and. One morning he woke up and she was talking to him. And she was there in bed and she was taking up, it looked to him at least as though she was taking up space in the bed. The mattress was sinking where she was. Mm -hmm. Wow. I don't know what you do with that. Yeah. Outside of that's probably a demon who mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Take, I mean, taking up corporeal space and. and mm -hmm. Supernatural beings have the ability to do that for a period of time. Just like uh, that's scary. Yeah. That's gonna give me. Nightmares. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I don't mean to give you nightmares. Here's a book you can read if you can't sleep tonight. Uh, think about the mystery of the Trinity. So, but but uh, the other thing, I think there's a story of Billy Graham waking up at some point in the middle of the night, looking at the at the, at the foot of his bed and seeing a demon. Trying to tempt him, and he just rolled over and went back to sleep. Because that's his faith, right? That is to say, what Jesus says about do not fear those who can harm the body, fear those who can harm the soul. Yeah. Demons have no ultimate power or claim over us, right? Uh, the other thing to say is perhaps guardian angels, or I shouldn't say guardian angels, mm -hmm. although maybe guardian, guardian angels exist and there is one assigned to everybody. Mm -hmm. Angels can perhaps take up corporeal space too mm -hmm. for a time. Um, have I told my story of Turkey yet? Uh, we were in, in Istanbul on a college trip, and there were two people, Henry and Daniel. They got separated from the group, and we were in the city of, you know, there's like 15 million people in Istanbul. Our group had left. Mm, Apparently, we, we were college kids. We don't need the buddy system, but we did. And if we did, they were buddies anyway, so they would have gotten lost together. So how good is the buddy system, really? Uh, they got lost. They got separated. There are all of these these tour groups there in Istanbul, uh, around the Hagia Sophia and the Blue Mosque and the kind of tourist areas and the old city. Uh, and somebody came up to them and said, hey, are you looking for your group? And they said, yes. He said, go that way. They're over there. And they found us. And then they told us how they got lost and they had no idea where they were and what we were going to do. Mm -hmm. And then as we started walking to our next place, they saw the guy. Mm -hmm. And he just looked at them and said, I'm glad you found your group and then walked the other way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was an angel. Maybe, yeah. I don't know, okay, right? And, and uh, yeah. they're both, uh, Henry's actually a priest now. And yeah. uh, Daniel, I think, got his PhD in theology or something. Bright guys, Christian guys. So, um, In any event. Or maybe it was just a local that recognized a lost American. Well, yeah. could have been, right? And it said, you look like those yeah. foolish college kids over there, yeah, right? Like yeah, see you. Mm -hmm. Right, I've seen your type before. Yeah. Get away from it, yeah, yeah. Uh, hard to tell, but but yeah, I mean, if somebody says that they heard from their loved ones, I'm not to respond to that. Yeah. yeah, if it's in prayer and they're Christian, I would ask, how do they know it wasn't God? Yeah. And I don't, I. I can't speak for God in this way. Maybe he would allow someone's loved one in heaven to see the situation and answer. Mm -hmm. I would never say that with any certainty because scripture right. doesn't reveal that to us. Right. I'd say it's outside. Of, it's not outside the realm of possibility because after all, God's God. Right. Right. I heard something fairly recently that was a new Is it idea. 8 o'clock? That's not. It is. 
But I want to hear what you say. Okay, well, go for it. Because yeah. there was something I had never heard before. I had heard that our deceased loved ones are in, could be in heaven praying for us. Not that we can pray to them, uh -huh. but they could be offering supplications for, like, a grandchild or right. a spouse or a, you know not like I say you know it's not that I can pray to that person and expect that person to hear uh -huh. but that person could be offering prayers for other for their loved ones still here on earth so I think the the proof text proof text I don't know if this is true or not, but the text people would go to for that is Romans 7, and the saints gathered around the throne of the right. Lamb. And what are they crying out? How long, O Lord? Right. Basically, how long will you let everyone who's still on earth suffer until you make all things right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's possible. The other question people say is, if you're in heaven and if you're in a state of perfection with Jesus, mm -hmm. if you're with the Lord... How can the thought of the suffering that people go on earth enter your mind? True. Well, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And at least in Romans 7, they appear to be cognizant that there is some part that's unfulfilled of God's plan of salvation. Mm -hmm. So that's Romans 7 that you're not referring to? Uh, Revelation 7. Oh, yeah, okay. Revelation 7. Okay. Um, all right. It's all right. 8 o'clock, so I'm going to try and finish the next seven petitions in about 10 minutes, and then... On the back side, we can talk about the Luther quotes and the Mortimer Adler quotes next week, and then the Dallas Willard quote, once I find that about the use of language. Um, but just to kind of review the the seven petitions as, and the introduction and conclusion as we'll lay them out here, and what God, Jesus specifically, teaches us about prayer in those petitions. Our Father who art in heaven, uh, God invites us to think of him not primarily as some kind of all-powerful judge or distant employer. I don't know why the thought of employer pops into my mind. <laughs> I'm too American. It's all about it's all about business, right? Uh, but as a fatherly figure who cares for us, right? So yes, he's all powerful. Yes, he's all knowing. But he's also dad uh, or Abba, which is what Jesus calls him, which he invites us to call him, which is really more like daddy or something very intimate, close relationship. Uh, not not an image of distance, but an image of nearness. But to pair our images together of both God's holiness and his nearness, our Father who art in heaven, right? So he's not on earth right now in any case, he's in, in the heavens. Um, what do children ask for from their fathers? Well, if you have my daughter, she never stops talking and asks us about anything. She's that ripe old age of five where everything is interesting and she never stops talking. Uh, and she'll ask me anything, right? So prayer is about asking literally anything, right? Uh, ask anything you want. Um, what of abusive earthly fathers? This is kind of just true that people tend to judge God their father from their earthly father. So if you had a good earthly father, it's easier to think of God as your heavenly father being good. Mm -hmm. If you were abused or had an otherwise negligent earthly father, uh, it will more than not, likely not, complicate your relationship with God. Right. Um, and that will be something you'll probably need to work through. Right. Um, so the is, first is Linda wanting to say something? Yes, Linda, do you have something to say? No. Okay, sorry. Sorry? Did you have a comment? No, I didn't. Uh, okay, sorry. Okay. I didn't know I said anything. Or, sorry. I misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I sighed. Yeah, no, that must have been at the side. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, the first petition, hallowed be thy name. We pray that God's name is God's name is holy in and of itself, Luther says, but we pray that it may become holy among us also. Um, so what's significant about the name? Well, God reveals himself to us by name. Uh, we talked about Exodus 3 and Yahweh and God doing that. Uh, but also, what is actually holy in our culture? Um, what is actually set apart? What is actually sacred? Maybe not much. Maybe individual human dignity or rights or our ability to choose things is holy. Um, but our sense of the holiness is not uh, 
not very high any, any longer. Anyway, uh, the second petition, thy kingdom come. What is the kingdom of God? Uh, the kingdom of God is God's rule and reign invading here on earth that will be made complete when Jesus returns. Um, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is the will of God? How can we know and discern the will of God in general and in our lives? Well, in one broad sense, God's will is that people would know Jesus and come to the knowledge of the truth. And everything else, whether or not I'm going to eat a cinnamon sugar Pop-Tart or a blueberry Pop-Tart, is secondary. And God probably doesn't want me eating Pop-Tarts anyway because they're not that good for me. Right? It's a temple of the Holy Spirit, and yet I'm putting Pop-Tarts in it. It probably doesn't, you know, in any event. Um, You're not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Good. All right. Uh, fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. God provides rain for both the just and the unjust. But we, of course, pray that God would lead us to recognize that he is really the one giving us our daily bread and also that we might be content with that in a society that advertises to us 24-7 to try and convince us that we need more and more. We ask that God would make us content if all we had in our cabinets was bread or beans or what does Dave Ramsey say to people who are getting out of debt? Beans and rice, rice and beans, right? Eat your beans and rice, rice and beans. Give us this day our daily rice and beans, right? Uh, but also how God provides for that through the doctrine of vocation. So God doesn't no longer, as he did in the Old Testament, does God bring forth manna from heaven, but instead there's farmers, there's there's people working in agriculture, there's truck drivers, there's uh, grocery store uh, managers, whoever that, that helps to feed us our, our daily bread. Um, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Uh, why would we need to pray for God's forgiveness? Well, we daily sin much, but how is the forgiveness that God grants us related to the forgiveness we give each other? Um, we won't answer that, but that's a good question to ponder. Leave us not to temptation. What are common temptations? Ultimately, some temptations are a question of trust and faith in God. What you're tempted to specifically probably has something to say about where your faith struggle is. Luther at one point says something about young men are tempted towards sins of the flesh and older men are tempted toward greed. And I guess I'm old because <laughs> I find myself more and more concerned with issues of security and money than I ever used to be. I used to just think the money will always be there. And now, uh, you know, I certainly have more money than I ever did in college. And yet I don't feel as, you know. You've got a family. You've got a family. Right, maybe that's it. Makes a difference. Yeah, you have responsibility. You actually have people to take care of or something right. like that. Anyway. You know, the ones that keep dragging along with you when you go somewhere? That gang? <laughs> that gang, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Kids cost money, apparently. You didn't realize that. Um, so does God tempt you? We would say no. Uh, God tempts no one, but we pray that God would guard us from the temptation that comes primarily from Satan. And then deliver us from evil and we'll have to pick up with this next week <laughs> with just a few light questions of what is the source of evil in, in the world does God cause evil yeah Linda I did have a question that's been bothering me for years about uh, the sixth petition and that is uh, I saved an article that I read in 2017 and I came across it while I was organizing a bunch of stuff and it was when Pope Francis had said that he didn't um, think that the translation was correct for mm. uh, do not uh, uh, or and lead us in, not into temptation. And he he said, you know, that he thought it should say something like, don't he think it, the interpretation should have been or was do not let us fall into temptation. And then. Um, he said about the, the, he said, it is Satan who leads us into temptation. Uh, that's his department. Mm -hmm. And then apparently the Catholic Church, but uh, not the all the Catholic Church did adopt that change to the sixth petition. And I was just wondering, because it supposedly, you know, all the churches were in a tizzy about the change and some joined with that logic and some didn't and I don't right. know what the perspective of the Lutheran 
church was because I always felt that um, it seemed like a weird statement to me. And I always wondered if it was right. And I know that we still say it, so obviously we've taken the position um, to say it the way we do. Yeah. Do you know about that? <laughs> yeah, and so... I think on the level of keeping keeping the Lord's Prayer the same is a good thing, and that would lead us to be cautious about changing the actual words of how we say it, because, because generations have been taught this prayer now in English in this translation. Um, but on page 269 of your catechism, Luther does say, lead us not into temptation. God tempts no one. We pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us from the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. So those are the three things that tempt us and deceive us, mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. Notice that the first sin is actually unbelief, false belief, right? Um, it's not, you know, embezzlement or murder or anything like that, so God would not lead us to murder our neighbor, but it's false belief, which is trying to get at the heart of it. So I think we would agree in substance with what Francis is saying, but we perhaps wouldn't want to change the Lord's Prayer as we pray it because we've been praying it this way for for decades now. Um, and, and yet we do a lot of things differently now than right. we did for decades. We don't do everything the way my parents or grandparents sure. or great-grandparents did yeah. in the Lutheran Church. But that, that's a, for another time, but I was just curious about... Yeah, no, it's a, that's a really good question. I'll have to look up what he... Um, more of what more of what he said about it. Do not let us fall into temptation. Might be a both a more accurate translation, but also a more accurate expression of the heart of the petition. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, on the note of Satan and does God cause evil, or why do bad things happen to good people? We'll pick up that next week. Um, so now we'll next week we'll talk about then the Luther quotations on there, which are very interesting. Uh, and then the Mortimer Adler story about prayer. And Mortimer Adler, who was a brilliant man who knew all about God, but didn't have a relationship with God until uh, he was in the hospital in 1984. And then he finally discovered the difference between knowledge about God and a relationship with God. Um, thoughts, comments, questions, conclusions? All right, I am going to, um, Linda, I'm going to mute you because it makes it a little strange as we pray the Lord's Prayer together. So I'll mute you, and then we will um, pray the Lord's Prayer. So let us, uh, let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Take some tomatoes. Take some tomatoes. Very good. Jessica and Linda, take care. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> See you, Atlas. <laughs> 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 <laughs>